Hello and welcome to the HPP Podcast. This is your host, Arden Castle, and each week we explore a new topic related to the Health Promotion Practice Journal. Whether it's demystifying publishing, breaking down a new article, or discussing public health-related topics with other editorial board members, we hope you enjoy each week's exploration into health promotion practice. Today, I'm joined by Steve Fawcett and Christina Holt, authors of Participatory Monitoring, an Evaluation of the COVID-19 Response in a Local Public Health System. They're going to discuss how a local public health system used participatory monitoring and evaluation systems to better understand and communicate COVID-19 response activities implemented across community sectors in Douglas County, Kansas. Before we get started, I'm going to ask them to introduce themselves and have them share where they're calling in from. And we'll go ahead and start with Christina Holt. Hello, my name is Christina Holt, calling in from Lawrence, Kansas, home of the University of Kansas and the Center for Community Health and Development. My passion is capacity building for community change and improvement and supporting people who are trying to better understand and improve their community-based change efforts. Good day. Uh, my name is Steve Fawcett. I'm a colleague of Christina's at the Center for Community Health and Development at the University of Kansas. In this context that we'll talk about today, monitoring and evaluation, there are so many interesting things to consider when you put one word in front of monitoring evaluation. When you add the word participatory, it changes the game. So what we'll talk about today is some of the implications of adding one word participatory to uh, monitoring and evaluation. Excellent. And what a wonderful segue. Christina, can you go ahead and help us summarize the paper that you both wrote? Absolutely. We partnered with our local public health system in Douglas County, Kansas, and local partners to document and evaluate the local COVID-19 response and recovery efforts. Our main evaluation questions were what factors or critical events were associated with increases and decreases in the pattern of new cases of COVID-19, and what factors or critical events were identified as enabling or impeding the local COVID-19 response effort. We utilized a participatory monitoring and evaluation system to capture, code, characterize, and communicate the local COVID-19 response by the local public health system. The team captured these response activities through local key informant interviews, as well as through document review, things like activity logs and minutes of unified command and school board meetings and press releases for response activities. We also facilitated sense-making sessions with our local public health stakeholders and made the data available for supporting reflection on the conditions affecting the response and recovery efforts. Excellent. So it utilized a lot of qualitative and quantitative data, and there are some really exciting graphs in this article. What was the motivator? Was there an idea or a genesis of this project that really pushed it into becoming a paper? When we think about monitoring and evaluation, we're thinking about the practice of seeing. And Annie Dillard wrote a wonderful book called Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, which featured sort of the art form of seeing. 
which essentially is about paying attention. And one of the first questions in monetary evaluation is what do we pay attention to? And how is it that we go about paying attention and who's in the room when the sense of things is made, when a meaning is constructed together? So our motivation for this study was really by adding participatory to monitoring evaluation was to try to better understand in the context of COVID what it was that we could pay attention to and to create systems for gathering information so that people could reflect on that systematically, constructively, to give meaning to it and to consider its implications for adjustment. So what we noticed is that there are plenty of data around, particularly data around new cases of COVID. Less was done though. There was a gap between the availability of data and people's capacity and, and frankly, the time and structure to systematically reflect on that information, to understand what's associated with increases, what's associated with decreases in new cases, the rate of spread of COVID-19. But there was a second gap that we were hoping to fill in this. So that first gap, as Christina mentioned, we tried to fill with a method system for being able to document and systematically reflect on new cases of COVID. And you'll hear more about that in a moment. Secondly, there, there was a gap though in actually what the response activities were, what it was that the community was doing to try to respond to the acceleration of COVID in the community. And so we adapted a method system that you'll hear more about that was intended to fill that gap to better document and make clear the pattern of response activities, which is since think of that as the intervention, comprehensive intervention, that was the companion to what we were seeing in the effect, that is any bending of the curve associated with new cases of COVID. There are other challenges too. And, and one of those is how does one build capacity among those doing the work to systematically reflect, to give meaning, to construct meaning on what it is that's being attended to. And so the sense-making protocol that you'll hear Christina describe in a moment was intended to be a replicable process by which those doing the work could systematically reflect on it, construct the meaning in ways that you'll hear more about, and use that construction of meaning to basically build a better path, build a better approach that could have a stronger, more powerful effect on, on what it was we're seeing. That is just fascinating. And Christina, I'm so excited to hear about more of the sense-making protocol that you're talking about in terms of filling this methods and community response gap. Can you talk a little bit more about what this initiative looked like? Yes, so we enabled availability of real-time data for partners and of course tailored that data capturing system to capture and characterize key aspects of the local effort, including the type of the COVID-19 response addressed the aspect of the recovery effort, the community sector in which it was implemented, and the vulnerable population intended to benefit. And we also engaged with local partners in systematically reflecting on what they were seeing in that data, what it meant, and then being able to use those reflections to think about possible implications for how they might want to adjust efforts going forward. That dialogue helped identify candidate factors associated with 
changes they were seeing in levels of new cases, reflecting on questions such as what factors or key events may have led to increases or decreases in new cases, as well as factors associated with the changes in the level of response activity, reflecting on questions such as what conditions or factors enabled or impeded response activities. These facilitated dialogues helped partners carve out time for identifying candidate factors affecting new cases and the response effort overall. This integration of quantitative and qualitative information yielded recommendations for practice that optimized enabling factors and responded to impeding factors, such as assuring social supports for stress management among public health staff. Awesome. And as you talk about these factors that are enabling or making easier public health system COVID-19 response activities, can you talk about what exactly are these factors? Absolutely. So when we're talking about enabling factors, we're just talking about what are those factors that help set the condition for the local public health system response activities. And so some of those enabling factors that local partners identified included local public health department having a relatively large size and experience and capacity. And that's, you know, in reference to some of the other public health departments that they see that are much smaller capacity. There's also quite a bit of collaborative relationships that were already existing prior to the pandemic. And that really Having those trusting relationships and existing collaborations really enabled them to be responsive quickly when the pandemic hit. Also, another enabling factor was establishing a multi-sector unified command structure. When they spoke with peer communities, I think they felt that that unified command structure really helped strengthen communication and coordination in our Douglas County communities. They also identified political support from our city and county commissioners for creating and enforcing public health orders. Excellent. So it sounds like there were a lot of things that helped enable this response to be quick and centralized, including the resources and people on deck able to respond to this. But were there other factors that were impeding or making this response more difficult? Yes, absolutely. There were also a number of factors that were identified by local partners that did impede the response effort. And that included the Kansas legislature limiting the governor's pandemic response power. Also, there was a lot of emergency funding received, which was very helpful, but there was also ambiguity about availability of future funding. There was also some pressure from the public to allow public gatherings and especially athletics to proceed. There was also prolonged stress on pandemic response staff. And there were lawsuits brought against the local health department for restrictions that were placed on bars as part of the pandemic response effort. 
And so given these enabling and impeding factors, I want to turn to you, Steve, and ask what lessons were learned about the COVID-19 response by this local public health system? As Christina was just saying, the, the construction of meaning, that is the factors that were associated with increases, decreases in cases, and those that were associated with enabling and impeding the response, those were grist for considering what, what overall lessons do our partners take from this work. And so what I'll describe is their sense of what it is they are taking away from this, given the, the analysis that Christina just described. So, so the first lesson that they spoke to was that the data helped contribute to was suggesting the importance of establishing collaborative relationships among partners well in advance of the crisis. The notion of trust. If you haven't worked together, and you're finally forced together in a crisis, good luck, right? It's that history of collaboration, of sharing resources and responsibilities and risks that enable them to come together as a unified command and, and do the work they did. Those trusted partnerships laid the foundation for expedited planning, action, and essentially standing up to the pressure that came when resistance was noted. Because of course it is in this context to mask mandates and other features of the response. In addition, they indicated that it was important to take care to create an organizational structure that can assure effective communication and coordinated response efforts. So the unified command was that structure. People shared what they were doing from each aspect, from each sector, because obviously it takes a multi-sector response, including government and others. So they came up with a unified structure for communication and also for coordinating and sharing who's doing what aspect of the response. And a final lesson learned was that the support of local government is critical. Without it, there can't be a prolonged or intensive implementation of what it takes to do this work. So the fact that the city and county government had the back of the health department, for example, and the local hospital, with its own exercise of mandates and when they were put in place and when they were removed and adjusted really reflected both the team effort, but also the necessity of having a governmental structure that enabled the features of the response to change over time. Excellent. And I'm hearing a lot about these longstanding relationships and trust and communication. And so, Christina, I want to know, what do you see as the value of engaging in participatory research and action. I mean, I imagine it takes a lot more time and energy to conduct this kind of research, but does that really play into your ability to find these findings? Being based in a university, I think it is truly only in partnership with communities and with our partners that we're really able to begin to have the type of impact that we aspire to have. And it is absolutely critical that we do engaged participatory work if we wanna have a hope at making a meaningful contribution. We have learned you know, over the years from this effort and from a number of efforts that engaged participatory monitoring and evaluation supports people who are doing the work and using data to inform their efforts and carving out that space 
to be able to reflect on what they're doing, the data, and to really be able to use that information for making adjustments and also sharing that with stakeholders and using that information to celebrate. Just this week, I was in conversation with community partners who were engaged in sense-making, who were looking at graphs of data about work that they were engaged in, and they're doing remarkable work. And yet, when they were looking at graphs that displayed the reach by population, for example, they realized that their efforts weren't as targeted as they might hope, given their commitment to make an improvement on equity. They also realized that their proportion of efforts that were dedicated to policy and system change were quite small relative to efforts related to service provision and development activities. And it really renewed their commitment to move upstream and to work on that very hard, takes a lot of time policy and system work that makes such a difference over the long haul. And so I do believe in the value of participatory research and action. I believe in the power of data for communities. I believe they're in the best position to make sense of what that data means and to use it for good. Absolutely. And I think that including them in the meaning making in this process allows them to reflect on their efforts and continue to move upstream or at least reflect on where the majority of their work is being done helps them grow. And I want to know, looking beyond just this community, Steve, what makes it possible or enables you to do this in Kansas and then therefore in the rest of the world? I think there's a few things that we could call out that probably reflect others' experiences as well. One of them we've talked about, relationships, trusted relationships that come from being there, being present, and and being humble. We are grossly ignorant of the context in which people try to do the work of assuring a local public health system that that's not only going to address communicable diseases and bend the curve when it needs to, but also is going to try to assure the conditions for health and well-being for everyone. We need to have trusted relationships with those who are actually doing the work. If we hope that when the time comes, we can partner with them and try to understand what works and how it works. So relationships for sure. As Christina described, we've had some experience doing this work. We've had some experience using this approach to systematic reflection, sense-making. The protocols for this are built into the way in which we go about doing participatory monitoring and evaluation work. And there are now scores of projects in which we have had the opportunity to learn with others using a protocol like this, adapted always for the local context and circumstance. So that experience matters because it means we can, we'll make fewer mistakes 
when we're engaging people we've made them before but hopefully we won't repeat them and and so there's that experience is important that experience in being systematic about the work trying to define a protocol not just a not an art form, but a protocol that makes its way to questions that can be posed and repeated by others when we're not present. That's what we mean by a capability, right? People can do this work of systematic reflection when we're not in the room, but we need to create the routines that allow for that. And that's a kind of capability. And when that capability is there, we can do it in one place and then another and then another, but with efficiency because people don't have time for this, not only in the context of pandemic, but that's true of other health and development efforts as well. People can barely have time to reflect on their work. So we better be darn efficient when we're enabling the process for them to do so. And lastly, there are shared values that we seek out partners who share values and especially within our team of community public health colleagues, we seek out those who value particular things. One of them is engaging with others who are doing the work with respect and humility. Without that, there'd be no reason why people would allow us to be in accompaniment with them. So that value is critical. As scientists, in addition, we want to be systematic. We want to be able to describe the process, the routine, the protocol, the practice in ways that are replicable by others. They're repeatable with modification, of course, as needed, but repeatable. The core's there. And so that we're essentially testing a protocol. That's fancy term, don't need to use it when we're talking. So we'll use terms like sense-making, but it's essentially, it's a protocol for being able to reflect on the work and what it means and to consider the implications. We're also looking for generalized practice. You know, where this isn't the only place in the world that COVID has reared its head. And so we're looking for practices that can be applied all over the place and with other kinds of issues as they emerge, right? So you're looking for generalized practices. And lastly, and, and I'll say we know that to be true because our team is also working with our colleagues with the WHO Regional Office for Africa where we've designed a similar, based on prior experience, but also this experience, a similar kind of protocol and routine where we're building capacity of our partners in the regional office for WHO in Brazzaville, Congo, to build capacity in countries to systematically reflect on patterns like these on patterns of new cases, what's increasing them, decreasing them, being able to document the response. So in essence, we've taken our capacity building approach, been engaged with the regional office for WHO in Africa, and have attempted to essentially replicate our capacity with adjustments, of course, and if trying to make it as efficient as possible so that they can build capacity at the country level for the same kind of systematic reflection. So in Senegal, for example, in a, another published work, which has just been accepted for publication in health promotion practice, we're describing that work with our colleagues in Africa, suggesting that, that this approach that Christina described in LED has generality, that it could be applied in a seemingly different context with similar success. And, and then there's a, a last thing that I think 
enables us to do this work. And one is the experience of the community toolbox, which Christina directs. That project now 20 plus years on, last time I looked has over 6 million unique users in 200 plus countries. That project has a certain commitment. It's a commitment to giving away knowledge and practical experience. And so the participatory evaluation methods, no doubt will add a link to this open source manuscript from the community toolbox section on participatory evaluation. Because this example that we've been talking about today is a lovely example of this commitment to construct knowledge with partners and then to give it away, right? In the sense that it can then be used, applied, improved upon by others we'll never meet and places we'll never be. I love that. I love the co-construction of knowledge and making it approachable and systematic and all underlined with this cultural humility and understanding that we need to be directly working with these community partners. I just, I love that. So exciting and what a fun way to apply it here. And before we close out the episode, I just want to open it up one more time. If you have any closing thoughts before we end out today. Thank you so much, Arden, for arranging this and for all your hard work making this happen. It's a gift that you are continuing to do this and make these possible. It's part of the innovativeness that the journal has shown, right? Um, You're looking for lots and lots of ways to engage people in thinking about coming across work whose first approach might not be reading the article, might be listening to people talk about it, reflect on it themselves. So thanks for doing it. Of course. And thank you so much. And I love the commitment to making it accessible to others and sharing that knowledge. So thank you so much for exactly that, sharing your knowledge with us today. And thank you all for listening and have a great day. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the HPP podcast. If you enjoyed this content, let us know by tagging us or responding to our promotions on Twitter and LinkedIn. You can also find out more about the Health Promotion Practice Journal from Sage or Sophie's websites. All of these links can be found on the podcast website at anchor.fm forward slash health dash promotion dash practice. Take care and have a great day.